morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This morning, as is our usual, we are going to investigate the weekly reading known as the Parasha, that section of the Torah that is offered in synagogues throughout the world. We are coming close to the conclusion of the book of Genesis. Our parasha begins in Genesis 44, about the middle of the chapter, verse 18, and continues through chapter 47 to the end. And the name of this week's parasha in Hebrew is Vayigash. Uh, Vayigash is usually translated, and he approached. I want to offer an overview of our parasha and then invite our guests to help us understand the nuances of the story and its place within the narrative of the book of Genesis. This week, our Torah portion begins with Judah, son of Jacob, approaching Joseph, who he does not yet know is his brother, to plead for the release of Benjamin offering himself as a slave to the Egyptian ruler in Benjamin's stead. Upon witnessing his brother's loyalty to one another, somewhat different than where this narrative began, Joseph reveals his identity to them. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The brothers, the Torah portion tells us, are overcome by shame and remorse, but Joseph comforts them. It was not you who sent me, he says to them, but the divine. It has all been ordained from above to save us the entire region from famine. The brothers rush back to Canaan with the news. Jacob, now the father who hasn't seen his beloved son in 22 years, comes to Egypt with his sons and their families, 70 souls in all, the Torah tells us, and is reunited with his son Joseph. On the way to Egypt, he receives the divine promise, fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will there make you a great nation. I will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. A little foreshadowing of what happens when we enter into the book of Exodus. Joseph gathers the wealth of Egypt by selling food and seed during the famine. Pharaoh gives Jacob's family the fertile county of Goshen to settle, and the children of Israel prosper in what the Torah tells us is their exile. My guest this morning is Rabbi Mark H. Levin, who was ordained a rabbi at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. He has completed his doctorate of Hebrew letters through the same institution and received an honorary doctor of divinity. He has been a congregational rabbi. In fact, he is the founding rabbi of congregation Beth Torah uh, outside of Kansas City. Uh, He writes often religion columns for the Kansas City Star, and he is the author of the book, Praying the Bible. He is, uh, as I mentioned, the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Torah. It's a joy to have Rabbi Levin back with us today. Uh, And so I welcome you to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Great to be here with you, Rabbi. 
Uh, it is uh, certainly, as I indicated, we're coming to the end of the book of Genesis. In just a few weeks, we will start the book of Exodus. And so I suppose it's not a bad time for us to uh, recap uh, what has taken place in these 48 chapters. We'll only have a few chapters left next week of Genesis. What's taken place in the narrative of the book of Genesis to remind those who have not been with, been with us every week? Absolutely. The first 11 chapters are from creation uh, through to Abraham, uh, including the Noah story and the Tower of Babel, as well as Adam and Eve. And we have the creation stories and some some basic stories about uh, what the world is about, that the world comes from all of humanity, comes from two human beings, that God created a perfect world called the Garden of Eden. The human beings kind of mess that up. Uh, what What is murder? It's when you kill your brother, as in the story of Cain and Abel. So these are basic s- stories underlying the realities with which we live. Then beginning in chapter 12, uh, we have the stories of the patriarchs and, ma- and matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. The same promises, the same covenantal relationship is given to Abraham and Sarah, uh, to Isaac and Rebecca, and to Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Uh, in the same language, meaning the same words. And so we see that God establishes a very special relationship with one people who uh, are, at this point, the uh, Hebrews and become the Israelites and ultimately the Jewish people. Beginning in chapter, that goes from 12 through 36. Beginning in chapter 37, uh, we have these this cycle of Joseph. Joseph moves to Egypt, and you have the idea of a diasporic uh, a community that is no longer located uh, principally in the land of Israel, but it establishes for all of Jewish history that we will have a home in the land of Israel, as we do today, uh, and periodically we'll live outside of Israel in the diaspora. You will notice in this story a couple of things. One is the covenant has already been established, uh, but that Joseph is establishing an um, a people, uh, the people of the household of of Israel, and there we will see here a conflict between the tribes. Uh, the conflict is based in the marriage with J- J- between Jacob and his two wives, the sisters Leah and Rachel. And in this parasha, in this Torah portion, at the very beginning, that conflict will be resolved uh, as Joseph finds out that his brothers who deceived him and sold him into slavery would not repeat, would not do the same thing again as Judah offers himself uh, for his brother Benjamin ra- rather than have Benjamin in ca- captivity, that Judah says he will he will be the captive and uh, Benjamin being a full brother to to Joseph, he knows that Judah has, has changed uh, and would not sell his brother into captivity as he did with Joseph, but rather would offer up himself. And so here we have a reconciliation between the tribes uh, and ultimately uh, a reconciliation that will lead them to an arm to a people in the land of Israel. So um, I want to ask you a few questions to help our listeners understand um, how you've divided the book of Genesis. I think most of our listeners are well aware 
of the primordial stories that take place being Genesis 1 through 11. And some of them will uh, understand it in a literal way. Some will understand it as a piece of poetry. Uh, some will understand it as divinely written and some as divinely inspired. But as you indicated for our listeners, chapter 12 uh, makes a major change. Everything moves in a new direction with the God of Genesis introducing himself to Abraham and promising Abraham that there will be a special relationship between Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. As you teach this story and the stories that emerge from it, um, how do you explain the transition from a God who oversees the entire world to a God who now has this unique relationship with one uh, family? It's uh, pretty clear, let me say, that the Bible is about the fact that God creates a world with whom, uh, with which, and the people with whom he wants a partnership. So God creates the Garden of Eden, puts two people in it, Adam and Eve, and that experiment fails. It goes 10 generations and proclaims that the people are now engaged in injustice and in violence and, and says to the family of Noah, I'm going to save you and we're going to start over. And to uh, guarantee that that will never happen again, he establishes a covenant with Noah and his family. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. So God will not start over again. Uh, rather, uh, when things do not go well for the next 10 generations, he selects one family. And he says to that family, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. That covenant is when you do what I ask you to do, when you live in accordance with my rules, you will be a blessing, as is promised to Abraham right there in chapter 12, and then later to Isaac chapter 17, and I think uh, again in 30, uh, I'm blanking on the number for, for Jacob, but let's say 34. Uh, so uh, those promises of a covenantal relationship are that the patriarchs and matriarchs and their descendants will obey the rules of God, and through them, and here's the critical point, all the families of the earth will be blessed. People will see that when you live in accordance with the rules of God, blessing follows. And when you oppose those rules and live differently, there will be wars. And, and as in Deuteronomy chapter 15, there'll be wars and dark skies and crops will fail. In other words, bad things will occur. But it's, it's the people of the household of Abraham, the patriarchs and matriarchs, who are the sign to the world for the world to see if we live in this way, in the way that they live, we will be living in accordance with the wishes of God and all will be well, not just for Israel, but for all humanity. So this uh, relationship that is established between the deity and the household of Abraham is in response to the Torah telling us that God, as is presented, was really rejected by humanity. And God was searching for a people to introduce his presence uh, to the universe. Uh, and therefore, Abraham, in accepting the covenant, 
serves as the conduit between God, the eternal source of uh, blessings and curses, uh, to the universe. Have I got that correct? Yes, I, I, I want to change it just a bit, and I think you have it just about right. Uh, the way I see it, it goes along with the interpretation of Nahum Sarna in his commentary uh, on Genesis, in which he notes that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he does not take it as good and evil. He takes that as the two sides of a pole, okay, good, everything right. between good and evil. And so at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when when uh, Adam and Eve eat from that tree, they get the possibility of re- of 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 following their own thoughts, of making their own choices rather than following God. I think you use the word reject. I would say not reject God, but reject God's commandments. And we all find ourselves in that very same situation that we can go after our own pleasures, our own minds, our our own thoughts, or we can accept uh, the divine rule. And when they uh, decide to follow their own hearts, their own appetites, the short term, let's say, the short term pleasures uh, that human beings pursue, then things go badly for them and uh, by implication for all of humanity. And so that's the choice that all of us face. So to be just to, to go off on this a little bit in a slightly different direction, the chosenness of the Jewish people, which we find later in uh, chapters uh, 19 and 20 of Exodus, is not special selection. It's special responsibility to be what Isaiah calls a light to the nations, an example of the blessings available to all through the beneficence of God. Well, the Torah introduces that um, in a very literal manner. Uh, But then it seems to many who read Torah uh, that don't have your erudition uh, to introduce the Joseph saga, which takes us away from covenantal responsibility and introduces us to a soap opera. Uh, and the soap opera, which has a wonderful hero and a series of semi-villains uh, and a uh, father who uh, fits some of the great examples of ineffectual parenting. Uh, so we have this uh, wonderful epi- series of episodes, as you identified it. The Joseph Saga, which is the longest uh, narrative in the book of Genesis. Is this simply about uh, exile and redemption, getting us set up for the next book? Wow. Um, So the second century school of Rabbi Ishmael, the school that did not win out, interpreted the Bible by saying, uh, the Torah speaks in human terms, and you and I had a Bible professor who would say, there's no one in the Bible you would want to be related to, which goes to show that uh, the Bible really does characterize who human beings are. And we see in this story of Joseph, the outcome, right, is is God's d- desire 
for the people to live in Egypt so that he could save them and bring them out in the Exodus and make them his people. But how they get there turns out to be human choice. So we do live out a covenantal relationship, and assumedly the history of the world will be the history that God will will have the conclusion that God wants. Uh, but how we get to that, that is, that is, God wants a people that's going to travel through history and the worlds are going to, the, the other peoples are going to look at them and know how to live. But how they get to all these events, well, that's a product of the foibles of being a human being. And so it answers also the question of, is there free will? Uh, the ultimate destiny of history, assumedly, is under divine guidance. But how we get to that destination, well, that's a matter of human choice all too often. You know, this is a book and a series of stories that on the surface of it, as I said somewhat facetiously, seem to be uh, a soap opera. But you find um, great meaning and, and great theological import in the story. Uh, do you think that's kind of an easy thing for the listener to do on their own? Or do listeners really require some sort of uh, system of guidance to be able to uh, access the hidden meaning of the text? Wow. This is a very difficult subject. I have had quite a number of students over the years. I was a pulpit rabbi for 38 years, and people would come and say, Rabbi, I'm going to start reading the Bible. And I would think to myself and sometimes say, yeah, good luck with that. Because the Bible is a very difficult book to read without some sort of systematic interpretation. So I would always recommend, and being um, a, a person who thinks of the Bible in part as literature, I would recommend that they find a good study text or a good teacher to guide them through. It's a different kind of literature. Uh, there are all kinds of literary um, uh, characteristics, I would say, techniques within the Bible that if you read it in translation and not in the original Hebrew, uh, will disappear to you. You won't see what the real story is. Uh, and, and how the literature develops. It's a magnificent piece of literature. So here, for instance, in the Joseph story, let's just take that for, for an example. Uh, we, we see how, uh, Judah, uh, is in chapter 36, right before the Joseph story, how he has yes. to make a moral choice and, and he makes the wrong choice. And so he's indicted a bit, but he admits that he made the wrong choice, as opposed to his brother Reuben, who makes the wrong choice, also a sexual situation, and doesn't admit to it and loses his position. The same thing will be true or has been true. Chapters 18 and 22 of Genesis, where in chapter 18, we see that God uh, guarantees, uh, Abraham guarantees with God that God will only offer Abraham a moral choice. And so when it comes to whether he is to sacrifice his son or not, he and this is missed by most people and missed by most commentators, Abraham knows that the outcome of chapter 22, the near sacrifice of Isaac, will be moral. The outcome will be moral. His, the test of faith is 
Does he have faith enough to know that even though he can't tell you what the outcome will be, it will be moral and he will and, and he will put his son's life on the line for that reason? And of course, he, he does, and it comes out with a moral conclusion. Uh, so so we have all these intricacies in the Bible. I would definitely recommend to people that they find a methodology that they can believe in and get a teacher who can show them how that methodology plays out through the Bible. I want to say one other thing about this. We see in the Bible the history of a household of Israel that attempts to serve God. But even at the end of Second Kings, the end of the historical parts of the Bible, if you just for a moment exclude some of those books um, from the 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 uh, the Babylonian exile, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and some would say Daniel. Um, you know, at that point, things do not go well, and we see that things do not always go well for the for the household of Israel. Life is difficult, but we see that over time, the relationship with God uh, does seem to work out, and following God's ways will bring blessings to individuals, and to humanity as well, to all of humanity. But the choices are very difficult to be made, and the uh, understanding of the Bible is also difficult. It's a complex book. I'm interested in how you've uh, introduced our listeners today and other occasions to the notion that this text uh, calls upon the reader to uh, suspend disbelief uh, and to really um, engage in what you and I would call the study of the text in order to feel and uh, more than feel, but uh, more than uh, a simplistic uh, interpretation of it. Is that how you've taught it throughout your rabbinic career, that this is a challenging text with no simple solutions? Absolutely. And and now you're taking me to a different level, but I, I do want to add this in. I would say to my congregants, all of whom I would say were liberally educated in liberal higher education institutions, and therefore were led astray by their doubts, I would say to them, look, Descartes told us 350 years ago, or whatever the dating is, okay, <laughs> that automatically anything that is not replicable, we're going to doubt. Get over it. I believe you have to invest in a method. Uh, ultimately, all of us do. We invest in our own version of reality, and we pursue that. So. The choice is not really whether you're going to invest in reality. You're definitely going to do that. The question is, how systematic are you going to be about it? And are you only going to pursue your own pleasures? So I would say to people, or I do say to people, look at the moral lessons. Look at the understanding of how we, how we try to understand life. And try to go with those and see what the Bible, with a deep investment, a deep discussion, what the Bible shows us, and whether your tradition, regardless of your religious tradition, what the rest of your religious tradition says about those same choices. In other words, don't just be guided by the feelings of the moment, 
Invest in a philosophy that you've developed over a lifetime that is illustrated in the Bible and try to live a systematic and a meaningful life through that. And that puts the Bible at the center of the individual's quest for meaning. It puts the Torah in a unique uh, position with regard to sacred literature. It's therefore not simply a uh, easy to read book of uh, once a week, but requires, if I understand you correctly, a real commitment on the part of the individual who wishes to find uh, ultimate meaning in the text. Have I got that right? Exactly correct. And I just want to add to that. I, I have a book about Jewish prayer, and, and which I say that prayer is never boring, even though it's repetitious. Uh, and I'm going to say the same thing here about the Bible, because the Bible, like prayer, is the interaction between three different components. God, whom I see in the text, the text itself, and the individual. And the individual is never the same in any two moments. You know, the old story of you can't put your foot in the same right. water twice. So, so here you bring your existential self to God and the text. And I always see new things in the text, not just because the text is extremely complex, which it is. And I love reading the various commentators. And I have a few on whom I rely, but there are dozens that I don't look at. Uh, so, so you, you take the text and you look at it and you see how it speaks to you in that moment. And notice I didn't say what you discover, right? The way the text speaks to you lifts itself up, so to speak. And there are things in your mind that go, oh, I never saw that before. And perhaps you never saw it before because when you read that initially, you were at a stage of your life that did not allow it to be um, part, uh, that your wisdom had not yet developed to see what was really being offered there. Absolutely the case. You are a different person, and the text will offer itself to you as appropriate to your life. Which is, of course, why in Jewish tradition, we have a cycle of Torah readings, which we've been offering to our listeners every year. Each year, my guest is able, because he or she is in a different spot, and you, the listeners, are at a different stage of your life, to hear the words of Torah uh, with a different uh, frequency and perhaps with a different uh, set of eyeglasses. My guest this morning has been the founding rabbi of Congregation Beth Torah in Overland, uh, Kansas, and uh, Rabbi Mark H. Levin. And I want to thank him for joining with us and helping us have an overview of the book of Genesis as we complete our study of it. Uh, you can hear our conversation on chri.ca as a podcast or chri 99.1 FM, or you can download it from wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.